Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Thomas McCraw, the Isidore Strauss Professor of Business History Emeritus at Harvard Business School. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and has written extensively on business history and capitalism. His latest book, which is our topic for discussion today, is Profit of Innovation, Joseph Schumpeter and Creative Destruction, published this year by Harvard Harvard University Press. Professor McCraw, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks so much. Our topic is the life and work of Joseph Schumpeter, the economist best known for the phrase creative destruction. And I suspect for many of our listeners and for even many economists, that's about all they know about the man. And I hope we can uh, explore his life and his work in a little more detail in this, in this conversation. The book is marvelous. It's beautifully written. It weaves Schumpeter's life together with his work. It's an intellectual portrait of the man, his era, and his place in the evolution of economic theory. What drew you to Schumpeter and, and, and got you interested in, in, the, in the man and, and got you to write the book? My first encounter with him, Russ, was as an undergraduate when in a political theory course we read a part of Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, which is his best-known book. Uh, and I was struck by the subtlety of, of his writing, uh, his apt use of metaphors, his extraordinary uh, knowledge of seemingly everything from ancient times to, to the present, the present being 1942, the book, uh, the year that book was published. And that was a while back, that Yeah, that was seminar. a while back. Uh, then uh, when I began to teach it, at Harvard especially, I... Uh, became uh, at the Harvard Business School, uh, where innovation is, is uh, as you might think, spelled with capital letters. Everything is about innovation. There's even a, a uh, department of entrepreneurship, a department of production and operations management, which emphasizes innovation, a, a department of strategy. All of these things are Schumpeterian topics, uh, and so my colleagues and I were sort of speaking prose, that is, Schumpeterese, without fully realizing it. Then, uh, probably after I'd been here for 15 or so years, I began to read Schumpeter pretty uh, thoroughly and discovered, uh, both to my joy and and some sorrow, that he, that he had written not just one book, but just uh millions and millions of words. Uh, he wrote about three million words in German, about two million in English. Uh, and so when you try to factor out how much output that is and consider that a, a average book contains about 100,000 words, then you really get up into the stratosphere and, and decide that he's written the equivalent of something like 50 books, uh, all of which I have now read, uh, the German part being a one of the reasons it took me, you know, six years instead of four to write write this biography. But it's it's the richness of his ideas, his willingness to embrace other disciplines uh, in addition to economics. Uh, so we we find him straying into history, sociology, psychology, uh, business administration.
administration, he, for example, he, he thought everyone should know accounting, uh, and he lamented the fact that most economists uh, seemed to know very little about business. Uh, almost none knew how to how to you know prepare a balance sheet or an income statement. And uh, argued throughout his career for a reunification of, of those things so that economics would have a, a more practical idea of what was going on in the real world rather than uh, drifting off into abstract uh, things in matrix, matrix algebra and calculus. Now, Schumpeter was a man of great paradox uh, because he was also a, a tremendous proponent of mathematization of the profession, which uh, in his time was only in its infancy. His, his great student, Paul Samuelson, probably did more than any other individual to bring mathematics into economics. Uh, I think Schumpeter today would be a little bit disconcerted by the uh, emphasis on, ma- on mathematics to the exclusion of these other things that I've mentioned. Well, I found that a fascinating part of the book. That tension, or paradox, as you say, um, in many ways, he's a modern economist on many dimensions. He died in 1950, correct? That's right. Right, just at the beginnings of the the real increase in formal mathematics and economics. There was mathematics before, but but that was the beginning of the most, you could say, the modern era, 1948, Samuelson's work. But despite that uh, passion he had for formalism, he had, as you say, this inter- interdisciplinary approach, which is increasingly of interest to economists in, in modern times. So, so as he, at his death, economics embarked on a long mathematical uh, narrowness, really. And yet today, economists are increasingly interested in psychology and the so-called behavioral economics, which we've discussed on previous podcasts. Gary Becker is a professor of sociology at the University of Chicago, not just of economics. So we have moved in a Schumpeterian direction in recent years, but uh, he certainly had that tension in his own, in his own work. I think that's right. Uh, Larry Summers and Brad DeLong, who are two well-known contemporary economists, have both said that the 21st century will be the century of Schumpeter. And the tendency you mentioned, I think, is evidence of that. Uh, Economics is broadening itself. Uh, It is, I think, uh, as many people have said, imperialistic. toward the other social sciences, but it's also the most self-critical of the social sciences, as well, in addition to being the most self-confident. So that one reads in many, many places uh, great economists of our own day saying that the discipline is too narrow, uh, it is too mathematized, and uh, needs to broaden itself out uh, to embrace what Robert Heilbrunner called the, the failure of vision, Vision being a term Schumpeter himself used many, many times. Yeah, you talk about his Schumpeter's role in, in beginning the the whole idea of business strategy, um, which is a staple of, of modern business school uh, when curriculum. When I first encountered that term, which is also in uh, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, it was a sort of eureka moment, and I thought good heavens, he not only coined this immortal phrase, creative destruction, uh, but he also did business strategy. Now, and for a while, I thought he had invented that term as well, but uh, thanks to JSTOR, uh, I was able to determine that others had used it before him, but not quite in the same sense until maybe the late 30s, uh, 
I think the, the earliest use I've been able to find of the phrase business strategy is in 1908 uh, by a labor economist. And people would discuss it now and again, but it's uh, and the analogy with military strategy, I think, was on Schumpeter's mind, mm-hmm. uh, as it has been uh, on others. You get, you know, these these one-minute manager-type business how-to books that, that all recommend Sun Tzu's The Art of War, sure. things like that. But uh, It's not quite what he had in mind. <laughs> not quite what he had in mind, but I do think he thought of business as a... Uh, as a uh, kind of competitive movement, not of an infinite number of uh, players, all with perfect information and uh, in the uh, sort of perfect competition model, but as as oligopolists moving and counter moving, uh, and all uh, vulnerable to uh, extinction. This is uh, where he diverges from, say, Galbraith, who who believed that uh, the modern corporation was truly immortal, that it, it you know, could not fail. Uh, and we know now that it can fail and that many have failed and that, you know, names like Gimbal's, Pan Am, uh, and any number of... A&P. Uh, yeah, just many, many great companies have failed. I want to I come to that question in a second, but first I want to come back to the strategy issue. Uh, he, you mentioned that he urged economists to get more interested in business. In, economists have gotten more interested in business schools uh, and in business curriculum, but I've, in my experience, economists are not very interested in business and don't forget about learning about accounting. That, that's off. That's out of the question for most economists. That's way too too practical. Um, but I find it ironic that that the way business strategy is often taught in business schools today is as a branch of game theory, which, again, part of that Schumpeter, I think, would have admired, but the, the narrowness of it and the lack of institutional detail that, that many uh, game theorists have, you know, the, the level of detail where let, let X be a firm and Y be a competitor with no other institutional or industrial, you know, anything about the particular industry, uh, I think would have bothered Schumpeter, and I'm curious if you agree. No, I think that I think so too. I, I think he would have believed game theory to be a step in the right direction, but a step that, like so many other mathematical steps, becomes an end in itself, uh, and the elegance becomes the goal rather than the utility of it uh, or the the applicability of of what is being uh, the technique that's being used to you know real world problems uh, or or to which I mean Schumpeter was not a not a, exactly a policy-oriented economist in the way that Keynes or Adam Smith or Milton Friedman or any number of other econ- great economists are. He was much more of a of a of a pure academic uh, who was just curious about how things worked and saw almost nothing as an end in itself, uh, especially mathematics. Now, again, one must remember that. He his very first publications, 1905, uh, were about mathematics uh, and about the need for more the use of more mathematics. He was the founder time. founder of the Econometric Society. Yes. wrote the first lead article in it, uh, the first issue, which is a, a pretty astonishing thing to to find in a uh, person like Schumpeter. But as I quote in my book, he was was called, uh, I think by Jacob Viner, the last of the great polymaths, someone who yeah. you know knows uh, a whole lot about a lot of different things. 
So Schumpeter, I think, was sort of like one of, I don't know, I, he, he's someone whom, whom you'd love to have dinner with, as, as many people have said of, say, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt or Benjamin Franklin or Shakespeare or any number of, of great people. And, and there's no way you could not come away from the experience feeling enriched and, and sort of on an uptick uh, and, and just feeling good about your own life of the mind. Well, your, your book is uh, a little bit like having dinner with him. It's not quite as, as entertaining, but it's pretty, pretty uh, does capture the flavor of the man. It's, a, it's ironic. I hadn't thought of it until you mentioned it just now. It's ironic that, especially in his youth, he was a very flamboyant person uh, and, and was a very social person and very, as you point out, and yet had the, he had these, these mood swings. He had tr- incredible tragedy in his life. But, but overall, I think he was a showman. He was flamboyant, and yet... His focus on uh, economics as a pure science, at least as he hoped it would be, in contrast to the people who got into the messy world of, of policy like Friedman or Galbraith or, or even Adam Smith, uh, certainly Keynes would be in that group, uh, it, it hurt his his impact, his uh, renown, which was something I think he cared a great deal about, at least based on your book. Do you find that, uh, do you find that ironic? I think the key. Yes, I do find it ironic. I think the key uh, is is to be found in, and th- this is one of the things that that took me a long time to figure out, Russ. And I'm I'm not absolutely positive that that I have it figured out, but I think that he he believed two or three two or three principles led to this this kind of uh, irony you speak of. One is that that he he never wanted to be a popularizer. That, that is, if you read Galbraith or even Adam Smith or or even the Keynes of say the Economic Consequences of the Peace, not right. necessarily the Keynes of the General Theory. No, but that first book. For sure. These are very easy books to read. Yeah. Uh, Schumpeter disdained that. He, <laughs> he he never wanted to be a popularizer. He did not. He he wanted to write for the elect. Uh, and he wanted to address other intellectuals, not only in economics, but in, in other fields sure. as well. And I think he was very successful in doing that. Uh, then, on the other hand, he he did not want to be uh, a policy person. He he tried that as finance minister of the first Austrian Republic and failed. He was not very good at it. Uh, Tough job. Not, not that anyone <laughs> could have done it in in the post-World War II yeah. time. He was, he was financial from right. March until October of 1919, a yeah. time of hyperinflation. Yeah. Uh, and he just couldn't do it. But even if, uh, under other circumstances, I don't think he would have been a successful politician. He was not a good staff person. He was much more like a... Uh, Kind of ivory tower intellectual, yeah. uh, but as Vasily Leontief said, uh, another of his associates who won the Nobel Prize, Leontief said, "But what an ivory tower it was!" You know, <laughs> he could discuss uh, French Renaissance architecture, just anything. Uh, yeah, it's incredible, incredible. Uh, uh, I think of all the depth. people we've mentioned, uh, and, and and we've mentioned, you know, some very very impressive people. You know, from Friedman to Keynes to Smith to uh, others, he was the most learned. He he just knew the most and just had this fabulously retentive memory, could remember things that, uh, you know, had happened 50 years ago or things that he had read uh, 40 years before in the British Museum uh, and just kept 
you know, cramming more and more and more stuff into this capacious brain and and managed to make these associations. You know, there's a famous uh, line in one of Yeats's poems, William Butler Yeats, only connect. Uh, and, and Schumpeter was able to connect things, that is, to see relationships between things that, that other people could not see. And that, I think, is one of the keys to his greatness as, a, as an economist and, and more broadly as a social scientist. And probably as a teacher. I, I think uh, other thing that comes out of the book is his devotion to his students and the conversation with the students and the care he took in his lectures. And uh, that ability to make connections, I'm sure, was extremely stimulating, even if at times in the example you give of his two-volume uh, opus, business, the book Business Cycles, a little bit uh, prolix in its in its vastness, and may have been uh, would have been better off as separate books. Probably would have had a bigger impact. Prolixity was one of the things I think he inherited from other grand European social yeah. theorists yeah. Uh, like <laughs> Hegel and Kant and uh, uh, John Stuart Mill, all of whom just wrote these gigantic things, particularly the German tradition, yeah. uh, with these sentences hundreds of words long. Uh, Schumpeter uh, ended up as quite a good English stylist, uh, but but not, again, not a popularizer, not a I mean, if, if if you really, I hate to use this word, deconstruct, yeah. but if you if you really analyze the rhetoric of, say, uh, Galbraith, then then what what you discover is that Galbraith forms a bond with the reader, and then t- and it's you know you and I are smarter than everybody else, and now we're going to show, uh, you know how how much smarter we are, and, and the attitude is one of kind of sneering. Uh, I mean, I love to read Galbraith. You, you can't read him without admiring him as a writer, especially if you care about good writing. But at the end of the day, you you wonder, you know, how much there is there. As Gertrude Stein said of, of Oakland, California, you, you know, you get there and there's no there there. But and that's that's my feeling about Galbraith, particularly the latter Galbraith. I, I did admire the affluent society and American capitalism. Those were books of the fifties, but. But later on, uh, so I, I don't think Galbraith belongs in the same no. sentence. As, he was playing a different Schumpeter. game. I, I think the people who belong with Schumpeter are uh, Marx, Keynes, uh, Adam Smith. <clears throat> now, who's the greatest of all, I think, is a meaningless question, uh, just as would be who is the greatest baseball player of all time. You have to say, well, do you mean as a pitcher or an infielder, outfielder, what? That was uh, Ted Williams, Tom. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, well, let's put that there. That does have an answer, but let's let's move along. I, I don't okay. think we want to focus too much on that. Um, I, I hope we haven't scared our, our listeners too much. I, I do want to say that that uh, that your your book is extremely readable in, in terms of conveying the the intellectual content of of Schumpeter's ideas as well as the the story of his life, which is utterly fascinating, and I knew virtually nothing about, uh, uh, other than his uh, remark that he wanted to be the greatest economist, horseman, and lover of all time, and two out of three wasn't bad, or some version of that. I I think that makes it way makes its way through economic graduate student life at, at various times. But I, I do want to tell our readers that capitalism, socialism, and democracy. While while Schumpeter is not a quote popularizer. Uh, part two, can capitalism survive, is really extraordinary analysis and and is eminently accessible and readable and and 
it's not a, a popular book in the sense of of Galbraith or, or say Free to Choose by Milton Friedman, but it's close. And in terms of its style and, and entertainment, it's really quite spectacular. This part you refer to, in my judgment, is the greatest uh, brief analysis of capitalism ever written by anybody. I agree. Uh, it's, as I recall, chapters 6, 7, and 8, and it's it's in very short compass. It's It's about 50 pages. And it's just unmatched, and it's it just nails capitalism, uh, both its uh, positive and its negative aspects. Well, let's talk about that, and I want to come back to your earlier remark about bigness and, and Galbraith and others' worries about that. Uh, Schumpeter was a contrarian in, in many, many ways, and he wrote those pages, and you point out he did a lot of the research over a very long period of time. It obviously, the 50 pages we're talking about drew on voluminous studies he'd done of, of industry and, and incredible research. It, it's a concise, almost a, a summary of, of, an, of an enormous amount of work. But he was writing that and thinking about those issues at a time when the world was increasingly concerned about big business and capitalism as a exploitive um, uh, mechanism as a way of, of harming the average person and enhancing the status of, of the, the elites. And he wrote a very contrarian uh, set of ideas that, that opposed that. He, he, in fact, rhetorically did a brilliant thing. He accepted the idea. He rejected monop- excuse me, he rejected the economist's textbook of perfect competition. He embraced the idea of what's sometimes called monopolistic competition or oligopoly or monopoly and said it doesn't matter that that competition is a process and that looking at a point in time and assuming that bigness is dangerous is totally wrong. So he took a remarkably contrarian view at that time and it's a view that for me has stood the test of time, for others not as much so. I think uh, most many economists would be uncomfortable with with that view, but he really makes the case for for letting competition work its way, and defend that argument of his. What was his? What was the logic of that for him? I think the logic, uh, Russ, is fundamentally historical. That is, if you if if you look at at any uh, as Schumpeter himself said, if you look at anything in an instant of time. Ex visu, as he said, uh, he said that's a meaningless uh, exercise. It, it, it would be like he, he did not use this metaphor, but it would be like looking at New England at a particular point of time. Well, it's, it makes a big difference whether it's the summer or the fall or the spring uh, or the winter. Uh, and, and you can't generalize from some hot day in July or from some brilliant foliage uh, day in, in uh, October about New England. Uh, maybe that's a poor example. Or, or, you, or another example, you can't judge the fate of the Titanic by uh, how it looks on the, on the quayside at Southampton before it starts its voyage across the Atlantic. You absolutely have to put the, put the dimension of time back into uh, economic analysis. Now, you mentioned before the the recent movements uh, back toward this kind of thing, uh, which uh, are not dominant, but they're there. Uh, in addition to the behavioral and psychological uh, aspects you mentioned, there's the Doug North uh, insistence on putting time back in. Uh, and institutions so context. thought of uh, economics as an evolutionary process. His, his great book, The Theory of Economic Development, 
uh, was originally published in German, and the, the word development was Entwicklung, uh, which can also be translated as evolution. So it could be the theory of economic evolution, and I think he would have preferred that title. Excuse me. So he, he sees things as uh, capitalism and as an endless process something that will never have any end. And I think all you have to do to, to validate that uh, insight is to just look around you. Look at, look at what's happened oh, in uh, something like information technology just in the last 20 years. Who on earth would have predicted the you know, success of uh, uh, manifestations of, or, or, or the various ways in which music is is uh, listened to uh, through vinyl and then CDs and then through uh, iPods and whatever the latest thing, MP3s, uh, you know, Bluetooth. This is just a constant evolution, all driven by competition, all driven by entrepreneurial force. Uh, so Schumpeter said. Look, this is what's going on, and and you're looking at X when you should be looking at Y, or looking at, or should be looking at, at X plus Y, where Y is is time, or X times Y. So so time is a major coefficient, and and what he's what he's looking at, and that's not necessarily true uh, in static e- economics. In fact, it's it's obviously not uh, true in static economic theory or, or static equilibrium theory. No, I think that's the uh, the most dangerous thing that we <clears throat> can potentially uh, do to our students as undergraduates or graduates is to show them a static supply and demand diagram and, and show that at a point in time, the gains from trade between buyers and sellers get shared, how much goes to one side or the other depends on the relative competitiveness of the market. And yet, over time, uh, Schumpeter argued that profits draw competition and competitors into a market. Innovation uh, destroys monopoly power and that the beneficiary of that competitive process, and he did see it as a process, was the average person, not, not the capitalist, not the, uh, not the rich, but the, the, the so-called man or woman in the street. And I think that claim is so ra- was, it was radical in, in its day uh, in, in a in a post great depression era it remains somewhat radical even today and i think we do a very poor job with our students the 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 mass of textbooks does a very poor job of conveying the dynamism of capitalism no i completely agree with that let's go back to the uh time and place in which Schumpeter wrote this book uh, but let's let's start with today in the 21st century, for the first time in history, most people on Earth live under capitalist regimes of, of one type or another. Now, some of them are, are extremely authoritarian, such as the Chinese or the Russian, but they are a form of capitalism. Now, when Schumpeter was writing uh, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, it was the reverse. The tide of history seemed to be going in the exact opposite Correct. direction. Yep. We had fascism in Europe, in Japan, uh, and soon to be in Argentina. Perón came to power in 1942 as well. Uh, we had communism in, uh, in Russia, Soviet be, Union, yeah. in China, yeah. and the Civil War that had been going on. And by 1949, of course, Mao Zedong's uh, revolution triumphs. In 1947, India is... Uh, 
uh, breaks away from the British Empire and begins to, f- to follow the Soviet model yeah. uh, of five-year plans and socialist things. So that, so that by the t- at the time Schumpeter died in 1950, something like 40 or 50 percent of the world was under uh, either either a pure communist regime or something close to it. Uh, and capitalism was maybe 30% and something else, uh, whatever you want to characterize uh, certain kinds of economies, were somewhere in between. But things didn't look very well, uh, very good uh, from a capitalist scary. point of view, either in 1942 or 1950. So that as, as we uh, speak today in 2007, it, our historical memory is just sort of, sort of gone of, of a time when the very existence of democratic capitalism was was under uh, mortal threat. So that's the uh, that's the great thing about Schumpeter as a, as a, as you say a contrarian who sees things uh, as as an outsider would see. And I, you know, when I first wrote, began to write this book, and it, it it dawned on me that he was a contrarian. I, I thought of the you know the f- famous. Uh, kind of teaching device of, of saying, imagine a person from Mars landed and looked around, described what he or she saw uh, as a way of, of trying to get into students' minds, you know, take a fresh look at sure. things uh, as if you're just coming on it. And he, he was able to do that. I think part of that was his, as you, as you say in the book, in, in many ways he was not at home anywhere. He, re- he really straddled uh, the two worlds of Europe and America without being at home in either. I think this outsider status was a key to his uh, understanding. Now, one, you know, I'm not a psychoanalyst, and this is not a psychobiography that I've written, but it just hits you in the face, or uh, it, it hit me in the face, that, that here's a person who moved his household about 30 times uh, <laughs> In, 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 his, in his lifetime, the last time being, you know, at the age of uh, about 55, uh, and he lived to be 67. So that's 30 times in 55 years. He lived in five different countries, uh, seven by today's maps, uh, one of them uh, being Ukraine, which at that time was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But he lived in England, Austria, Germany, the Czech Republic, what's now the Czech Republic, uh, Egypt, uh, Ukraine, the United States, uh, each for at least a year. Now, by contrast, Keynes or any uh, U.S. economist we've discussed, Galbraith, who was a Canadian and lived in maybe three or four different places, but Keynes uh, just lived in Cambridge and, and was in his Cambridge circle or his Bloomsbury circle in London. And so was just totally an, an English uh, view of the world. Uh, and even, even Keynes's uh, advocates uh, acknowledge this, whereas here's Schumpeter just going all over the place and, and observing things, soaking things up with his... Uh, magnificent intellect, and just trying to put to, to make sense of all of this, and the sense that he makes is uh, is climaxed in capitalism, socialism, and democracy in those pages that you yourself have mentioned uh, about what what really is capitalism. If you have to, you know, boil it down to. 50 pages and a 350-page book, here's what it is. The remainder of the book being about uh, socialism and democracy, uh, 
but it's it's really it's a tour de force of one of these books that'll live forever. Yeah, it's a remarkable book. I want to talk about it some more, but before I we do, I want to get it at one other issue. Um, you talk about how he wrote the book at a time when capitalism appeared to be on the decline, and yet he was able to see its strengths in a way that people of his time were not able to see. It strikes me that that book is um, remarkably Austrian, and I want to give our readers, our listeners, a flavor of what I mean by that. I, I know you understand it, but uh, he, he comes to America, he comes to Harvard in, in what year? Well, he first came in 1927 as a visitor, but he came in 1932 as a full professor and so, stayed here the rest of his so life. So in 1932, he is 49, so he's pretty far in his career, but he, he befriends as he had befriended before. He spends time with uh, some of the great American economists, Irving Fisher um, and, and others, uh, Tausig at Harvard. He influences a whole generation of great, as we said, mathematical economists, people like Samuelson, uh, James Tobin, who make huge uh, theoretical contributions to, to macro and microeconomics. And yet he remains in some dimension an Austrian in, in the following sense. Despite his embrace of, of formalism, and we've talked about the tension there, his most influential book is about capitalism as an organism, as a biological evolutionary organism that, that can't be modeled formally or that is modeled formally with, with some risk and danger. And in many ways, his, 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 his call to capitalism's defense in the face of the trend is reminiscent of Hayek's Road to Serfdom, which in some ways is a similar book, a, a a call at a time when capitalism appears to be fading from the scene, when top-down systems seem to be on the rise and inevitable, whether they're going to be democratic or authoritarian almost doesn't seem to matter. We're going to make the planning decisions at the top rather than at the entrepreneur level, which is what Schumpeter and the Austrian school were so passionate about. So in many ways, he, he comes back at the end of his career to his roots um, as a member of that Austrian school that, although it had its formal treatment really in today's world to the extent it's it's thriving is about uh, economics as a process and as an organic experience rather than a static one no I, I think that's well said now let me let me do a couple of riffs on that uh, unless you wanted to say something else I don't I want I, I, I want you to riff. <laughs> okay, let, take out the uh, the trumpet and or guitar and do what you want Okay, The Road to Serfdom is published in 1944. It's a book about half the length of Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, which had been published in 1942. The messages of the two books are pretty much exactly the same, mm. but, the, but the methods are quite different. Absolutely. Hayek writes uh, for the average reader. Anyone can pick up that book and, and read it in half a day and come away, you know, greatly enriched and... Uh, <clears throat> And, and, you know, pretty convinced that, that Hayek is correct. Hayek at the time was at the London School of Economics. His, his opposing view is, is the German view. That is, his, what he's attacking is not communism so much as planning yep. of, of the fascist variety. And so he's, his, his uh, sort of significant other in that book is uh, Nazi Germany. 
Mm-hmm. Now, in Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, Schumpeter's significant author is the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, as the the nearest thing to a socialist economy that's ever done. And, and, and it's an extremely subtle and ingenious uh, analysis written on a level that is not pitched the way the road to serfdom is pitched. It's not a polemic. No, it's not a polemic. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of disguised polemic. Yep. It's a polemic that, that forces people who are socialists to read the book and then proceeds to eviscerate socialism in, in a just a, um, extraordinarily deft way so that socialists themselves don't understand exactly how he has done it. Uh, now, Hayek, uh, when someone asked Hayek, well, why didn't he write about the Soviet Union, he said, well, I didn't want to alienate my audience because uh, in 1944 the Soviet Union was, was critical to the survival of Britain. Yeah. Uh, because it was it was its uh, chief ally uh, on the Eastern Front. Uh, it also had an intellectual uh, glamour about it for many American intellectuals. No, that's right. It's depressing. That's right. Now, on the Austrian question, which is a, a pretty complex question, it's not as I as I wrote in my, uh, my my own book. I don't think it's a particularly important question, but it sure is a fascinating one. Let me let me uh, comment on that a little bit. Schumpeter was an Austrian, but he was not an Austrian economist in the way that Mises, uh, or who was Hayek's uh, teacher, or Hayek was. That is, he he was not quite as uh, uh, emphatic in in his opposition to government intervention as they were. Right. He was much more like uh, Eugen von uh, von Bawerk, whom some of your listeners may not have ever heard of, but who was a famous economist uh, and Schumpeter's chief teacher, and he was three times uh, financial uh, finance minister of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And above all, Karl Menger, who who was the original Austrian economist, the founder of the Austrian school, and Friedrich von Wieser, who was Schumpeter's teacher. Schumpeter's uh, two chief teachers were Bohm Bawerk and uh, Wieser, who had been students of Menger. Now, here we're, we're maybe getting a little bit uh, obscure for some some of your listeners, but, yeah, but okay. probably not for most it. of them. <laughs> they can handle it. So Schumpeter is a classmate of Mises, but also of these Marxists in, in, in a very famous seminar uh, run by Bohm Bawerk. There is Schumpeter, Mises, uh, uh, Otto Bauer, who's a socialist, uh, Rudolf Hilferding, who's a socialist, and Emma Lederer, who's a socialist. So here we've got these five brilliant people, all of whom go on to, to careers ranging from the extremely successful to the absolutely spectacular, uh, in this one seminar arguing about Marx, yeah, that which have been is the some subject seminar. of the seminar. <laughs> So they come out of this with very different uh, points of view. I, I once wrote in a paper I delivered at an Austrian uh, economics seminar at NYU, which is the one of the centers of Austrian economics in this country, uh, that uh, that Mises was a, a free market fundamentalist and Schumpeter was a kind of agnostic, and these other other three guys were were pretty confirmed socialists. 
And Israel Kirchner, who was at sure. the seminar, said, you know, do you have any evidence that, that Mises was, an, was a free market fundamentalist at this time? That is 1905. And, of course, I did not. Uh, so I tried to deflect the question by <laughs> saying, do you, Professor Kirchner, and the other members of this seminar, there were about 20 people in the room, regard Schumpeter as an Austrian economist in the sense that you you identify yourselves as Austrian economists. And that precipitated about a five-minute discussion, the end of which was, yes, Schumpeter is an Austrian economist, with a kind of asterisk. Uh, he's not Hayek, he's not Mises, but, of course, but, but he's much, much more like them than he is like other people. Yeah, and, and, and of course, Kirsten's work is very focused on entrepreneurship. Oh, yes. And the role of the entrepreneur in, in economic uh, life, which is very Schumpeterian. Um, yeah, and he's a, he's a really smart guy and, a, and an extremely impressive person to, you know, to, to, to get into an argument with, uh, something I, I don't advise anyone to do. <laughs> uh, let's turn to the role of the entrepreneur, which we haven't spent, I don't think, enough time on. Um, start with the distinction that Schumpeter made between invention and innovation. What did he mean by that, and why was he concerned with that distinction? I think here we see Schumpeter as the historian, uh, and that insight did not just come out of thin air. It came out of studying uh, the Industrial Revolution, so that one comes across people who invent things, but nothing ever becomes of them, uh, of either the thing or the inventor. And and things can get invented, you know, like Leonardo da Vinci uh, had all these great ideas, uh, including things about how to fly, uh, how to do artificial flight, uh, that is an airplane. Nothing comes out of it. doesn't mean da Vinci wasn't a, an entrepreneur. It just means that the time wasn't right. Schumpeter came across these people like Richard Arkwright or Edmund Cartwright, who were key figures in the Industrial Revolution and textiles in England, and uh, did become entrepreneurs, as did James Watt, as did Josiah Wedgwood. That is, these people who would invent new ways to do things, but then also, that, that's just the start of, of everything. Then you have to organize a, you know, a company or a group or a partnership to, to bring the thing to market. And a way to uh, apply that it. that is a whole different kind of task. Uh, Schumpeter called it doing the thing. You have to then do the thing, which isn't a very insightful way to express it, but uh, I think we both know what he means. And and then he proceeds in this book you mentioned before, Business Cycles, to give just example upon example until the reader is just about burdened down with these things, but completely convinced that he's right. Uh, so uh, invention is one thing, or, or you know, even that that famous cliche of Thomas Edison's that uh, it's 2% inspiration and then 98% perspiration. So Schumpeter very much believed in that uh, that maxim, that, that you had to not only have the idea, but implement the idea. Uh, well, that... and, and furthermore, Ross, that you had to do it at a particular moment. Uh, that is, or to give a modern example, both Michael Dell and, and Bill Gates dropped out of undergraduate school because they thought that if they stayed in, uh, the moment would pass by. So Gates drops out of Harvard and Michael Dell drops out of the University of Texas and with results that, uh, that we're very familiar with today. I find it interesting, though. The reason, the reason I think it's such an important distinction is that we often disdain the innovator and, and admire the inventor. 
Uh, I'm not a big Microsoft fan. I use an Apple computer. I, I don't think they're dangerous, and I would have left them alone. And I think uh, Schumpeter would have left them alone as well. Uh, you can comment on that if, if you'd like. But what I think is interesting is that is that Gates is seen as a mere marketer, as if somehow the bringing of uh, uh, computers to the desktops of, of every American with internet access is somehow uh, unglamorous because he wasn't a, a brilliant uh, scientist or he didn't cure cancer or he didn't develop the interface that, that he uses that my, that Apple used first and that they got from Xerox uh, in, uh, in, Palo, in California, Palo, yeah. Menlo Park, I think. But that, that whole, uh, we have a romance about the inventor, the genius, and we, we look at with a little bit of disdain at the innovator who who merely profits from bringing the thing into the into the world, but that second step is pretty important. Oh, I think that's I think you're exactly right. Uh, I think that this is maybe part of the American worship of the solitary hero. Uh, yep. So that we glorify Henry Ford uh, and we forget Alfred Sloan, who just beat the pants off Ford uh, in this great epic battle of the 1920s between Ford and General Motors. Both of them were entrepreneurs. Ford was a little bit of an inventor. Uh, now, the Daimler and Benz invented the internal combustion engine in the 1880s, but but the Model T was really something <laughs> something else, yeah. and we have to you know doff our hat to Ford. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, if if you if you look at polls of entrepreneurs, uh, and there have been half a dozen of them, Henry Ford usually comes out first, and I think that's that's incorrect. Uh, for the reason you mentioned. Whatever else you might say about Gates, and I'm not a particular admirer of Microsoft either, but, but he was a heck of an entrepreneur, as was Michael Dell. No doubt about it. He was not a techie himself. Dell was someone who could take apart a computer, repair it, and, and resell it. That's how he got started in his dorm room at, at the University of Texas, and then built the, the Dell computer uh, on that basis. But you're right. We don't romanticize this, and and we're here. We're not. We're talking about something that's about halfway between the inventor on the one hand and the organization man of the 1950s mm -hmm. uh, on the other. That is the person in the gray flannel suit. Uh, it's not. It's not a manager. It's a. It's a. In Schumpeter's view, it was a particular psychological type uh, who was not in it primarily for the money, but just for the fun of doing it. And of, of winning, uh, almost like a sports figure, so that so that Schumpeter's entrepreneur, you know, may have borne more uh, resemblance to someone like Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan than to uh, to Eli Whitney. Uh, mm -hmm. Although Whitney himself was was a pretty good entrepreneur as well as an inventor. Yeah, but that compulsion to compete exactly. and, and change the world and to see your vision imprinted and stamped on the world, I think, is a huge part of it. Yeah, let me comment on that, too, because Schumpeter uh, believed that this is not only the uh, creative part of creative destruction, but the destruction part. It's because if you lose the obsession, uh, which everybody does, you're going to lose out. Schumpeter said that, you know, if, if someone builds a successful business and then just continues to run it with thrift and wisdom and so forth, that person is going to be overtaken uh, and put out of business by someone who's who's obsessing on the thing 
uh, and no one can can obsess forever. And in a family business, the you know the son or daughter may obsess, but the grandson or granddaughter is not going to do that, and is going to you know want to buy a house in the country and and lead a, a more balanced life. But the entrepreneur does not lead a balanced yeah. life. Spence, uh, yeah. If you're looking for a balanced life, do not uh, look at the entrepreneur at the height of, of his or her uh, fever. And I think fever is a is a is an appropriate word. It's it's a kind of feverish activity. And large companies try desperately understanding that. I think uh, either from experience or from Schumpeter, probably mostly experience, but understanding that. They do try to sustain that fever uh, with, of course, limited success because as you get large, it's much, much harder to do. But you know, Bill Gates supposedly goes to bed at night, at least he claims, uh, worrying that they're not going to make payroll that week. They're probably going to make payroll this week, uh, but worrying about it and pretending you might not is, is a way to keep those entrepreneurial fires burning. And I think uh, a lot of people misunderstand – the vulnerability of the large company for precisely these Schumpeterian reasons. I think so. And I, I think the, the other thing, Russ, is, is the history of American capitalism, which sort of had a free ride uh, from, in my own estimate as a historian, from about 1943, when mobilization for World War II uh, really was, was just uh, sweeping all before it, or to put put this in quantitative terms, in 1939, employment unemployment rate in the United States was 17.2 percent. 1944, it's 1.2 percent. So that you've got the you know you've got this very high number and very low number within a five year period. But from about 1943 until the early 70s, uh, the United States had a sort of free ride. Uh, it, its productivity was twice, uh, three times that of even other advanced industrialized nations. And so that's the period in which a lot of this writing by Galbraith and others uh, celebrating uh, the American achievement and, and kind of assuming that it would go on forever uh, took hold. Then comes the Japanese invasion in, in automobiles, consumer electronics, and a couple of other things. And so that now, uh, in, uh, in other words, a sort of preview of, of globalization, now no company is safe uh, in any industry. Uh, and we, we see this uh, happening just in, in front of our eyes. We see the United States manufacturing sector being hollowed out. We see China out-competing everybody, uh, and not just because of its, its low wages. That's, that's the uh, major ingredient, but it's not the only one. So that no one can, uh, can sleep uh, very well at night. Now, the way that relates to Schumpeter and this uh, issue of the inventor and the innovator that we referred to earlier is that Schumpeter in his lifetime, pretty late in life, began to see entrepreneurship as a function rather than the uh, product of an individual intellect, uh, a function that, that, that could be performed by teams of people, and once the company gets beyond a certain size, almost has to be performed by teams of people. If you look, for example, at the <clears throat> people who founded Intel, all of whom started at Fairchild, I'm talking about Robert Noyce and Andy Grove, yeah. uh, and... Uh, you know the guy who, uh, whose name escapes me. That you know Moore's Law, Gordon Moore. Yep. 
they all go to Intel uh, and are called, first of all, the traitorous eight, and then the, the, the sort of innovative eight. And they turn Intel into this colossus, but they have to do it as a team. Uh, the the technical genius is is nice. Uh, the organizational genius is uh, is Andy Grove, and out of that team, that function, that, that group entrepreneurship, we get Intel. And the same is true, I think, of Microsoft. It wasn't just Bill Gates. That's it was right. you know uh, all, all the, his his good friend Paul that he grew up with, Paul Allen, yeah. uh, and other people as well. So entrepreneurship today is uh, is not the solo operator for very long. I mean, it, it may start with the solo operator, but pretty soon you, you've, you've got to have a team of people who, who know how to do certain things. Finance, hiring, human relations, stuff like that. No, that's right. There's a division of labor uh, that's, that's important in a startup. Uh, you do need that visionary often, but the visionary obviously needs a lot of help uh, in the modern world especially. Um, just a, a small disagreement. I don't think our manufacturing activity is being hollowed out. It, it, it is, a, but it is incredibly competitive. Manufacturing output uh, is still growing re- very healthily in the United States, but manufacturing employment is not. And so, as an employment source, it's shrinking dramatically. Uh, but that's because of the relentless innovation going on in the in the production process, which is some of it coming domestically and some of it coming uh, coming from abroad. But let's talk more. No, I think we're on the same page there. The, yeah, just the, as a footnote, uh, I just I just want to make sure. We're... No, I, I was I was just thinking of the Rust Belt. But what you're talking about is is productivity, yeah. is output per you know per person hour. But let's let's turn to the to the to the issue of creative destruction, which we've mentioned now a few times, and I think is the the phrase that people most associate with Schumpeter. Um, Let's, what, what did he mean by that, and what was the role of the entrepreneur in that process? Well, it's an oxymoron, uh, creative destruction. It, it expresses two opposing ideas in one phrase. If you Google it today, you'll come up with about a million hits. And you'll find it in the titles of books on architecture, uh, history, literature. Uh, it's just a wonderful metaphor, probably second only to the invisible hand. Uh, in the realm of economics, but uh, you can take take this phrase "creative destruction" a very long way uh, in almost any direction. But what Schumpeter meant was that back to the capitalism is an evolutionary process. One thing is going to drive out another thing, uh, just as sure as night is going to follow day. I mean, we can invent uh, you know the greatest buggy whip ever invented, uh, and it's just. A spectacular buggy whip, but as soon as the Model T Ford comes along, it's obsolete. Uh, the same with organizational uh, arrangements. Schumpeter wrote that the corporation had to be invented uh, and developed just in exactly the same way uh, as, as some kind of uh, tool had to be invented. Uh, that, that is, uh, and the, the, the corporation drives out the partnership, drives out the uh, you know, the uh, sole proprietorship becomes the dominant form. Not the only form, but the dominant form. So that the things that are destroyed don't all disappear, but they just become much less important. Uh, the and, and here the evolutionary uh, analog is both helpful and not very helpful because 
evolution is not, nor is creative destruction necessarily, uh, a constant uh, ascent to better and better and better things. Sometimes worse things can drive out things, as in, as in finance and Gresham's Law. Uh, you can print bad money and it'll drive out good money. But uh, the destruction is just as important as the creation. The, the key to the whole thing, and the most important single fact about it at all, again, is the dimension of time. Because if you look at, at, at today's newspaper, it's usually full of bad news. Uh, somebody's uh, out of work. This many people are getting killed in Iraq. Uh, Korea doesn't get along north and south. Uh, the stock market happened to hit a high today, but, but tomorrow it may go down. Uh, Bad news uh, tends to drive out good news, but if you look at things over time, then, and especially long periods of time, this is the way I begin the book, by the way, as you as you may remember, that if you take the uh, GDP per capita today for the average American, it's 20 times what it was in 1800. It's about six or eight times what it was in 1900. Well, that's progress, uh, and that's why you can't look at just a point in time and, and, and conclude much of anything. Then the next question is, how did that happen? It happened through creative destruction. Uh, something better drove out something worse. A steel plow drove out a wooden plow. A harvester drove out a thresher. Uh, the automobile drove out the horse and buggy. The uh, air travel drove out train travel, uh, at least in this country, mainly because it's such a big country. The same is not necessarily true of, say, Switzerland, where you know you can take a train from uh, Bern to Geneva about as fast as you can in an airplane. But but in a country that's three thousand miles in, in uh, dimension, uh, you, you know you got to have an airplane. Then you get a bigger airplane, and then an even bigger one. And then you get the internet, which means you don't, then, you don't have to get on the plane yeah, to go to top get video all, conferencing. Get the internet, and, which, which is just, uh, I think, you know, I think Mac' impression of Schumpeter's reaction to the internet, had he lived to see it, would have been just absolute, absolute ecstasy. Uh, now I see, you know, the the sort of uh, climax of of creative destruction uh, and. You know, not everything about the internet is good by any means, but uh, heaven knows it's the it's the biggest leap forward that that I can think of in uh, in business history. And we're just getting started. Yeah. What, what's fascinating to me is that is that his it really it his insights in many ways harken to 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 Bastiat's idea of the seen and the unseen. It, what is seen is a giant corporation that's, that seems to have very little competition, that seems to be making a great deal of money, which which in many people's minds means they must be taking it from someone and therefore harming the, 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 the customer. And and yet over time that changes and Schumpeter was writing about that. Uh, some of it he was writing about, it was about turn-of-the-century robber barons who were seen as these monsters at, by by various writers who, who exploited people through their monopoly. And as you pointed out, the largest firms often had the lowest prices, the uh, the largest outputs, uh, serving the greatest number of people. And uh, I've got a quote from uh, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, one of my favorites, where he says, Queen Elizabeth owned silk stockings. 
the capitalist achievement does not typically consist in providing more silk stockings for queens, but in bringing them within the reach of factory girls in return for steadily decreasing amounts of effort. And that change in the standard of living that you're remarking on, this incredible transformation, not for the rich, but for the average person from today compared to 1800 or 1900, it's hard to see that. We focus on the today when you know a factory closes and we see the hardship that that imposes on its workers. What Schumpeter saw was that that's not the end of the story. And I think that's just uh, the, the irony is, of course, the pace of that transformation is faster now than ever. And that it must it would have bewildered. Uh, he must have thought it was fast then, but it, he hadn't seen anything yet. Well, there's no question that history's accelerated. Uh and keeps accelerating it it's almost a relentless relentlessness uh it's just faster and faster and faster so that today's generations uh, uh, you know can hardly uh keep up with with uh you know with the latest thing by the way the end of that quotation you just read uh says that this is this is the nature of capitalism yeah. capitalism it, it, this is not a coincidence uh, this thing about silk stockings it's just endemic in the capitalist process, uh, but it's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful little paragraph. Uh, I, I think I use it myself on about page six of my book, but uh, it's it's the essence of capitalism. Now, he, what what Schumpeter said, and uh, is exactly what what you said that that is what we see in front of us at a given moment of time may or may not be uh, important. Uh, it it because things are going to change tomorrow, and, and so you have to look at things over the sweep of time. I, as a historian, you know, I'm just sort of have this soaked into my bones and did before uh, I encountered Schumpeter. And so when I did encounter him and be- began to read him, it, it, uh, I, I just experienced this sense of elation that, uh, that an economist had seen this, because most economists I had read uh, did not see this uh, or, or did not choose to write about it. Now, why that is is a mystery to me. Uh, I think it's maybe a, a sort of trained incapacity uh, because of the the, the way that uh, that undergraduate and, and especially graduate curricula in, e- in economics, and not just economics, but many other disciplines as well, have become narrower yeah. and narrower and more and more and more technical and have required more and more training and, and technique and therefore have had to exclude something. And so what gets dropped is the history of economic thought, economic history itself. I'm talking about graduate curricula in just this department. But in history, the same thing has happened. So that uh, there, you hardly ever find an economic history course in, an, in a history department. Some even have trouble uh, keeping up with diplomatic history or political history uh, because everything is social history or the, you know, the history of, of uh, people who have, who have been uh, disadvantaged. And all of that is necessary, of course, but we can't lose, uh, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater in these things. And that's, that's what Schumpeter was arguing against. Now, the, the, the obverse of all of this is that we can't all be dilettantes you know, or you end up knowing everything about nothing uh, instead of nothing about everything. So it's 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 a nice balance and, and something every person has to choose for himself or herself. Well, here here at George Mason, we're swimming against the tide. Uh, we still talk about the history of economic thought. We just hired 
uh, three economic historians, and uh, I'm optimistic. Well, good for you. I'm optimistic that uh, the broader uh, Schumpeterian uh, worldview is, is, could return a little bit to the economic uh, discipline. We'll see. Yeah, I'm not optimistic about that, <laughs> uh, basically because I, you know, I taught a uh, seminar that was required of, of economics graduate students for about 25 years. In the evolution of that seminar, uh, it became more and more and more technical in what the students wanted to do. That is, they, they didn't want to know about the past. They wanted to know about last night's problem sets, things yeah. like that. And, and particularly, Ross, about finance, uh, because that's where they see the big money as being. That's and that's, right. that's where the smartest people seem to be gravitating. And, uh, you know, and, and then comes something like the collapse of long-term capital uh, management uh, or some big hedge fund like that. And nobody can understand exactly why that happened. Well, the reason it didn't happen is because something that happened that had never before happened, i.e. the default of the Russian bonds, uh, which wasn't factored into the uh, thousands of equations right. that go into that model. Yeah, we, we interviewed, uh, I interviewed Nicholas Nassim Taleb, uh, author of Fooled by Randomness, and he talks with incredible uh, verve about that episode and in, in, uh, the, the blindness of folks fooled by uh, various uh, myopia there. Um, yeah, I think the title of the book is called When Genius Failed, something like that. Uh-huh. But, I, you know, as Schumpeter said, I, you know, when he was writing about the, the role of mathematics, he said, we have to have it, but we shouldn't squeeze out everything else. Yeah. He wrote this wonderful credo, which is in the, as you mentioned, in the lead article of the first issue of Econometrica, 1933. He said, we, "We're no school. We're, we, we don't. Uh, we, we're not trying to denounce anybody. We're not trying to squeeze out anybody. We're just saying that there has to be a quantitative element if we're going to move this science forward." Uh, and he was right. He was right, but. The question is how far the pendulum is going to swing. And and in my judgment, it has swung all the way, uh, you know, not only to the opposite extreme, but all the way through the cabinet that holds the clock. Yeah, maybe it'll swing back. Yeah, Uh, I think it will, but we'll see. The the, the incentives are uh, all pushing in that direction, but uh, those incentives can change, but we'll see what happens. my guest today has been Thomas McCraw of Harvard University, an author of Profit of Innovation, Joseph Schumpeter and Creative Destruction. Thanks for being part of EconTalk. No, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Ross. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.